invited to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. John. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails, my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, and Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who've not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. You, you know the scene. I mean, the whole movie. The bad guy's got the best of it. He's hurt the good guy's family shot his partner, wreaked mindless havoc on a terrified city. I use he intentionally here because these are usually tropes involved in like action movies, men stuff. Anyway, so the the, the bad guy's been causing trouble through the whole city and then finally on this close to the, 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 the last scene, 
We see the two locked in an epic battle on top of some skyscraper somewhere with a helicopter sort of hovering in the background. They've knocked each other around uh, and, 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 and their guns have fallen away, punched each other mercilessly for like five minutes. And just as the bad guy has the hero backed up to the edge of the building, a fall and certain death imminent, miraculously somehow the positions get switched and the bad guy loses his footing and, and he falls over the edge. But the good guy reaches out his hand just in time, right? Grabs hold with his well-muscled arm, catching the villain before he plunges unceremoniously to his death. And our hero sort of strains to hold on to the bad guy with all he has, and the villain says something like, you don't have the guts, right? By this time, of course, we think almost, almost viscerally, yes, he does, drop that jerk. And, and I think it probably rarely occurs to us that we've been had. <laughs> that Hollywood has subverted us again and made murderers out of friendly, ordinary people like you and I. <laughs> I mean, we killed him in our minds, right? Just as sure as if it had been our hands to which he'd been clinging. But at the time, something about it felt so right, didn't it? I mean, there's justice involved. You get what you deserve. What goes around comes around. You want to dance, you got to pay the piper. You know all that stuff. The Bible even talks about it. Anyone who maims another shall suffer the same injury in return. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The injury inflicted is the injury to be suffered. Now, of course, the world has worked that way from the beginning, right? And sometimes worse. But it's not really an adequate moral, ethical system, is it? I mean, intuitively, we know that straight eye for an eye retributive justice just isn't very effective. I mean, as Martin Luther King Jr. pointed out, society that relies entirely on eye for an eye justice only winds up producing a lot of blind people. But sometimes, we rise above the pettiness of the tit-for-tat, don't we? I mean, in our better moments, we act differently. We, we teach it to our children. We call it the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, carry on a variation of this theme but of course, in the, in the mouth of Jesus, the golden rule sounds something like, love your neighbor as you love yourself, right? And to be honest, uh, that feels like quite an improvement in a civilized society, don't you think? I mean, in our most idealistic moments, we believe it to be at least better than a kind of Hammurabi-like lopping off of body parts. Still, though, as an ethical system, it does have the drawback of relying entirely on me as a reference point, doesn't it? I mean, which frankly feels like something of a flaw in the system. 
I mean, what if I don't love myself very much at all? What, what, what if I happen to be self-destructive? Does, does the golden rule relieve me of my duty toward another person beyond what I might expect from myself, which is not very much, quite frankly? I mean, the golden rule doesn't really work for nihilists, does it? I mean, and that's a problem, isn't it? But Jesus, seeing that more is needed for the ordering of a new world, comes up with a different standard. No longer do I get to treat people the same way they treat me, or even treat them the way I'd like to be treated. He raises the ethical bar on us. According to Jesus, I'm duty-bound now to not to love my neighbor as myself, which is often inadequate, given the many ways that we fail so often to love ourselves. We are now told to love our neighbor as Christ loved us. And there, of course, is the catch. Why is that? Well, I mean, how did Jesus love us? See, now you see the giant tree that's fallen across our path on the way to living the way Jesus lived, right? Well, take a look at our gospel this morning. It's only a, been a few hours since Jesus' remaining followers received the shocking news that his body has gone missing. Now, from their reaction, we get the sense that the news about Jesus having been raised from the dead either hasn't sunk in yet or has met with a great deal of skepticism from everybody who hadn't gone to the tomb this morning. Now, as it is, Jesus' followers are all gathered in a house. Doors are locked like they just got done watching Sleepaway Camp Massacre 4 or something. They're huddled together. Everybody's shooting furtive glances around the room, trying to figure out the next move. Remember, to the Romans, these followers are likely considered accomplices to a failed revolutionary whom the state has just executed as a cautionary tale to any enterprising political subversive with ideas of freedom fighter glory. That Jesus' followers are on constant watch for the popo doesn't make them faithless. Makes them smart, frankly. I mean, they know their faces are plastered all over every post office in Palestine. If they hadn't gone to ground, Jesus' followers would likely have found themselves staring down at a world that had gone mad from the lofty heights of a cross. It's into this fraught atmosphere that Jesus walks unannounced. He somehow finds his way in through all the locked doors, and the first words out of his mouth are, Peace which is fitting given that peace is so far down on everybody's list of current emotional states at this point that peace is something they're pretty well convinced they're never going to feel again. But then Jesus says something I find really interesting. He says, receive the Holy Spirit, and if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. What does that even mean? Seriously. I mean, 
Jesus is putting everybody else's forgiveness into the hands of his followers? I mean, that doesn't sound like a very good idea, does it? I got to tell you, I mean, I, mean I, I know a lot of Jesus' followers. And I'm not sure I want my flimsy attempts at being human scrutinized like I'm going to receive a score at the Moral Olympics. Well, Patwell's last attempt looked solid, but the Russian judge gave him only a 9.0. He's going to need more than that if he's going to get into the last round. My forgiveness in somebody else's hands? Huh. I mean, I know it's probably just me, but, but, but I have difficulty believing that this is what Jesus meant when he started talking about forgiving sins. A few years back, <clears throat> Sandra uh, Schneiders, president of the Catholic Biblical Association, offered a grammatically different way of reading this text in Greek. In the original, it Sins, the word, it's only mentioned one time. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. So according to Dr. Schneider's, the second part should read something like, if you retain them, they are retained. But see, that raises a, another question grammatically, doesn't it? What or who is retained? Is it the sins or the sinner? Because the, of the ambiguity inherent in certain Greek cases, the translators, they, well, they gotta make a guess. Traditionally, they'd assume that the them that's being retained are the sins. You forgive sins, they're forgiven, those sins are. If you hold on to those sins, then those sins stay. They're not forgiven. But Schneider's argues that the passage makes more sense to go with the other options. It's not the sins that we hold on to. She writes, of whomever you forgive the sins, they, the sins, are forgiven to them. Whomever you hold fast or embrace, they are held fast or embraced. They being the sinners. In other words, when Jesus' followers make a decision about forgiving another's sins, they aren't standing as God's appointed judges. Instead, they're being given the responsibility for hanging on to someone who's in danger of falling. I mean, that's got to be way more comforting to a group of scared disciples afraid that they themselves are in danger of falling with nobody around to hold them up than giving them the job of going out to judge the rest of the world. I mean, we already have a pretty good idea of how that would turn out, don't we? Giving one group of religious people the power to judge everybody else's moral lives? I mean, already too many of the folks who, who, who wear the name Christian are, are, are skulking around other people's bedrooms, right? Around their doctor's offices, camped outside their bathrooms and locker rooms, trying to catch people they consider sinners and condemn them. Holding fast, not to the people struggling to hold on, but holding on and fast to their sins. But we don't need any more amateur Sherlock Holmeses who've been mandated to go out and judge people who are different from them. I mean, that's how we end up with folks convinced they know exactly 
who in a crowded downtown bank shouldn't be allowed to live any longer. That's how we end up with so many dead black people in jail cells, lying in streets. Jesus' first visit after Easter Sunday morning is only kind of a brief proof-of-life hostage video. I mean, not all of Jesus' disciples are even there. Apparently, they sent Thomas out to buy pizza and Twinkies for everybody else because he didn't get to see Jesus' first appearance. Like most of the rest of us, Thomas is withholding judgment until he sees for himself. He knows how the world works, and he's not given an inch until he sees the Snopes report either busting or confirming the myth. I mean, it's been a week, and Thomas is dubious about the stories of Jesus' resurrection. So much so, in fact, that Thomas has become a part of our cultural lexicon as a man whose only notable quality, the only thing he's remembered for at all, is doubting. But when Jesus finally shows up to Thomas, it isn't his doubt that Jesus clings to. It's Thomas himself. Thomas, along with the rest of us sinners, hold out this hand. And despite the doubt, say, please, don't let me go. Jesus reaches out his hand, grabs Thomas, grabs us on the way down. Mary Hinkle Shore points out that as we experience the story of Thomas, we're invited to trust that Jesus will keep showing up alive and with a body that holds together the worst that has happened to him and his risen life. Again and again, he will offer that wounded living body to his own beloved ones until finally the whole creation will be held fast in the peace he offers when he makes himself known. My buddy Kevin, minister, he was instrumental in helping to clean up after flooding in the northern part of our state some years back. One day he was leading a crew cleaning up one of the local churches there in Owenton, Kentucky, just up the road. The church had been ravaged by floods. Uh, and this woman, she came up to the back door and she said, can somebody help me? And Kevin said, well, yeah, sure, what do you need? Well, we live in a second story uh, apartment over our landlord. And, and our apartment's fine, but it wiped out everything on the first floor in our landlord's apartment. And he came to us and he told us that we needed to get out of our apartment so that he could use it to live in himself. He said we needed to have all of our stuff out by five o'clock today, or he's gonna have it taken to the dump. And, well, we were wondering if maybe you could help us move our stuff out. It, it, 
It ain't much, but it's all we got. And Kevin said, well, yeah, of course. Livid that the landlord would treat struggling people like that. So he took the crew to the house, and the woman, well, she was right, apparently. Uh, the downstairs apartment had been devastated. But when they got upstairs, <clears throat> they found <clears throat> that altogether no water, even though it hadn't reached the apartment, didn't, that apartment didn't look a whole lot better than what they'd seen on the first floor. There were papers all around, and the, the furniture had holes in it. And they found a half-eaten loaf of bread with mouse droppings on it. About the only object worth anything was the bed. The frame was obviously an antique, but I mean, the mattress was old, spotted, tears in it. Kevin said, look, we can move the frame, but we don't have room enough for the mattress. And don't worry, it's okay. We'll get you a new mattress and box springs when you get moved in. And she said, but we can't take the mattress? No, I said, look, it's in bad shape anyway, and we don't have room for it. But look, don't worry, we're going to get you a new one. So they moved the stuff into another dumpy apartment, and they were on their way back when they pulled up to see the National Guard loading that nasty old mattress on the back of another one of their trucks as the woman sort of supervised. And Kevin, he said he was tired and aggravated after days of work, he stops the truck and he stomps out and he said, hey, I thought, look, we agreed that we were going to leave that mattress here and we'd get you a new one. Now, what's going on? And she said, well, preacher, <clears throat> I, I got to studying it after we talked and I know that old mattress doesn't look like much to you, but it's, it's worked fine for us for years. And well, I, I was thinking that if you got a brand new mattress stuff, that, 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 that maybe you could give it to my landlord because he ain't got anything now. Everything he had was wiped out. He needs it more than we do. And knowing the landlord's sins, his callous selfishness, I don't know about you, but I said, you know what? Drop that jerk. Let him go. He deserves it. But she didn't listen to me. She held on to him anyway. Now, I don't know about you, but as someone who regularly feels like he might plummet to the bottom because of his own faults and inadequacies, the thought of Jesus holding out his hand brings me unspeakable peace. How, how did Jesus love us? Well, that's a tough one. I mean, we just observed Good Friday a little over a week ago, but I heard about a lady in Owenton, Kentucky, who knows the answer about how Jesus loved us. Maybe we should ask her. Amen.
Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.